0: Welcome to the University of South Dakota's podcast, Credit Hour. On this special series, Voices Amplified, we welcome the many individuals throughout our USD community that have unique insight, expertise, and experience with some of the most important issues impacting our communities. Join us as we grow our awareness on topics like social justice, criminal justice reform, and systemic racism. We hope that through these conversations, we can learn not only new perspectives and information, but also challenge ourselves to identify ways we can contribute to creating lasting change. On today's episode of Credit Hour, we speak with Dr. Laura Renee Chandler, the director of the Center for Diversity and Community at USD, about systemic racism, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the protests occurring in the wake of the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. Dr. Chandler, how are you doing this morning?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you.
0: Um, can you first just tell us a little bit about your role at USD?
1: Sure. So I'm the director of the Center for Diversity and Community here at USD. It's the Multicultural Center. Um, I've been in the position since June of 2018, so exactly two years. Um, and I also teach in the history department. So my, mas- my master's and my PhD are in U.S. history, um, and I've been teaching for a number of years. And um, just this past spring, I started offering a course on the civil rights movement in the history department here.
0: Well, you know, I want to ask you about that class, but just before that, I guess, what is the mission of the Center for Diversity and Community?
1: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so we're a multicultural center. We're a relatively young office. Um, The multicultural center movement was the result of student activism during the civil rights and black power movements. Students wanted to see staff and faculty in spaces that reflected their cultures and their experiences. So many universities established their multicultural centers in the late 70s or 80s or even early 90s. Um, The CDC was established in 2014. So we're pretty young. Uh, We primarily serve the needs of students from historically marginalized backgrounds, students of color, LGBTQ populations, international students, Uh, We provide programming and resources that that highlight and uplift and educate about these cultures um, so that they can see themselves reflected in the campus community, which is really key to their success. Um, But we also serve everyone on campus. So everyone is welcome to come to the CDC to participate in our events, to learn with us and and from us. Um, And we care a lot about the relationships between majority and minority populations on campus. So we also do a lot of cultural understanding, cross-cultural understanding and cultural uh, awareness work, too.
0: You know, and you may have just answered this question, but why why, I guess, are spaces like the CDC important on campus?
1: So you know, I think it's it's important that students. We, we don't want to have the idea that students come to campus and that everyone comes from the same background, the same context, the same experience, and so therefore they have to um, be tended to or nurtured in the same way on campus. Students really need to see themselves reflected in the environment around them, and I think that's true both on campus and off campus. It is key to their success. You know, to um, to know what avenues are available for them, and so um, that's. that's really what we try to provide, you know, to make sure that they persist, that they continue in their education, um, that they feel valued and they feel like a welcome member of the community. Um, But we also, you know, help other students from majority populations learn as well so that they can enter into a very diverse society and and learn how to work with different communities.
0: You know, you said that you um, had recently started teaching a course kind of on the civil rights movement. Um, Yes. Yeah, I'm curious, is there anything about the civil rights movement that... You know, someone who, you know, maybe just got the, you know, public education version of it, just, you know, a a short lesson on it in grade school that maybe (laughs) that's all they know about it. I mean, is there anything that you would want them to know about the civil rights movement that you think would be engaging or they would just find interesting or important?
1: Wow, that would be um, a a whole uh, an entirely different conversation.
0: (laughs) That'd be a whole other episode of the podcast, probably.
1: Yes, yes. An entirely different podcast episode. Um, You know, so one thing that that's important, and I do this Every time I teach the course, you know, I tell students, so we're going to start this class in the institution of slavery. So I I don't start in the 20th century. It's not possible to. that The the civil rights movement is part of a a long arc of history. It's part of a long uh, freedom struggle that has taken place involving African-Americans and many other um, um, marginalized groups uh, throughout this nation's history. So thinking that you can learn or or start with, say, the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955 and maybe end. At Black Power and have a full understanding of that movement, it really isn't possible. You, you have to tell the story of this nation to understand its significance.
0: You know, you have a, another role um, in, in addition to all your responsibilities here at USD. Um, you're also the director of the South Dakota African American History Museum in Sioux Falls. Um, yes. And I know just in preparation for the podcast, I had watched a TED talk that you gave um, that mm-hmm. I guess kind of s- seeks to answer this question. But why does something like black history matter in South Dakota?
1: Yeah. So, um, So we study history really to try and we we study the past to try and understand our present, how we've reached uh, the moment that we're in. And we study these complex situations that have occurred in the past. We try to understand the origins, causation, how these problems developed over time. And, you know, our hope is that we will reveal something that is universal about our condition as human beings. And so when we only tell one part of the story or we only highlight the story for one group of people, uh, we end up with a very incomplete picture of who who we are and how events have happened over time. So I'll say, you know, in, in 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 reference to black history in South Dakota, you know, I'm I'm not from here. I'm from North Carolina. Um very proud of my southern roots you know, North Carolina was a very important state in the the civil rights movement, Uh, very proud of that. And when I moved to this region of the country, I kind of assumed that I was coming to a place where there would not be much in terms of Black history, simply because um, Black people are a small part of the the population here. Um, But I started doing my own research, and I, I found out about the South Dakota African American History Museum. And most importantly, I started meeting some of the descendants of Black families that have lived here since the late 19th century, early 20th century and even even earlier than that um and realized how wrong i was in making that assumption about this region of the country um black people have been living and working in this region um since before statehood, back when it was just the Dakota Territory. And through the stories of these people, we can tell uh, a number of national stories, not just of of our history here in the region, but of of America. So we can talk about the institution of slavery. We can tell the story of the Great Migration, of the creation of the Black Town Movement and the Black Homestead Movement. We can talk about World War II and, and the Civil Rights Movement and so much. And part of what I hope to do, um, as director of the museum, is then to talk about um, the history of Black Lives Matter um, and how that has impacted the lives of people living here um, today. So we should never make those assumptions. And um, you know, essentially, what we're doing is is we um, Black history is it's part of our history as South Dakotans, but it's also our history as Americans as well.
0: You know, one event that I think was um you know, just pretty historic itself was the recent demonstration in Sioux Falls that occurred in the wake of the killings of George Floyd (laughs) and Breonna Taylor. You know, I I think you spoke at um, that event. What what was that event about and why was it significant?
1: Yeah, I did. So I did speak. I was one of the speakers for that day. Um, So, you know, I I think one of the things that's important to note is that it, it was organized by a group of very young people. They were recent college graduates and they wanted to um have the march to show solidarity with the family of george floyd um, and also with the city of minneapolis you know minneapolis has had a a very long and troubled history between the black community and the police department and it was really a matter of time before protests were going to um, really boil over in that city and um uh, because the, the the demands of the people were not being responded to by city leadership you know um, and so I think that what we were witnessing here in Sioux Falls, and, and I should note that the, the the marches are continuing. It wasn't just that event on on uh, May 31st. Um, or a smaller event that took took place on May 30th, they're continuing in this community. Um, I think that people are trying to show solidarity with Black communities throughout the country. They're saying that we believe you when you talk about these instances of police violence. Um, and then they're also saying that, you know, we want to live in a world and live in communities where this doesn't happen. So I, I don't know what it is uh, in particular about um the instance of the killing of George Floyd, you know, if it was how he died or the fact that it was video recorded, it's really not that unique from, from many other instances of police violence um, within black communities. But I'm glad that people have at least awakened to this issue um, and want to address this now, even if it's, even if it's a little late.
0: You know, I guess you, you had mentioned that it was organized by um, some fairly young um, you know, mm-hmm. college graduates. I guess, why is it important for, there to be youth involvement in sort of social justice movements? And maybe why does it seem that they sometimes spring up from young people?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I might think about this question a little differently. So it's important for young people to be involved, but um, but this truly is a youth mem- movement, right? All, what's happening all around the country. You know, these are, are really people who are between the ages of probably about 17 and 22 who are organizing these protests all throughout the country. Um, and these are people who don't have a memory of september 11th right like global terrorism is not the defining issue of their lives right uh the the defining issues for them are uh gun violence in schools right Um, because they've watched that we've they've watched us do nothing about that and the other issue for them is police brutality and and the killing of unarmed black people from the death of trayvon martin in 2012 Uh, when most of them were children, to now the killing of George Floyd. And they've literally watched this play out on their smartphones and on their computers. And it it essentially goes against everything that they have been told throughout their very short lives about racism and race in America, right, that we tell them that it's a post-racial society, that we're all equal, that a black man can even be president of the United States, that race doesn't matter anymore. Um, And they're realizing that that isn't true that that isn't true about what's happening in this country. And so now um, they've gone to the streets and they're using their power. They're using really the only power that they have in the midst of a global pandemic and in, in an election year um, um, to try and create change.
0: You know, you said that, you you know, you weren't quite sure what about the killing of George Floyd um, sort of seemed to be the spark that really, I mean, has caused protests in almost every Mm -hmm. Major American city, but also small uh, cities, more rural areas like South Dakota. Right. I mean, to dig into that a little bit, I mean, do you have any theories on on why now we're seeing this type of political activism?
1: Mm hmm. Um. I, I struggle with this. I honestly, and, and, you know, and some of my other uh, colleagues and friends that I work and organize with, I mean, we talk about this a lot. I, I mean, I think about, I can remember where I was when Tamir Rice was killed. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is a young man. It was caught on video. He was a child playing with a gun um, and a police officer approached. And before he even was fully out of the car, had shot and killed a child. Right. Mm-hmm. That was simply playing. Um I I don't know. It's hard for me to to understand why it is this particular moment. I I think for sure, you know, what we have been through with uh, the global pandemic and with COVID, um, I I know for sure that that plays a part in it, um, that perhaps we are... um, relying upon each other more, um, in our communities that even with COVID, we realize that that is something that disproportionately impacts communities of color, um, even in this state of South Dakota. And, and so maybe this is something that's boiling over. Um, I I have a really hard time answering that question. You know, I'm sorry. I I know that's not a very good answer. um,
0: No, I I, I think that's actually really illuminating. I mean, one thing that you said just a few minutes ago, just about the defining sort of event in the nature of one's life. And that that really struck a chord with me because I do think about the world in almost like a post and pre. Yeah. I'm old enough, you know, to remember what life was like before, you know, September 11th. And right. obviously I think that this global pandemic is going to be another event, right? right? Um I also just wonder if there's, you know, there ends up being tipping points. I mean, I remember I was living in Chicago mm-hmm. when Michael Brown was killed um in Ferguson and the impact that that had, um, in Chicago. And I don't know. I mean, it, it just seems like, well, how many more of these sort of killings are we going to have to witness? Right. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing that really bothered me about, um, the, you know, murder of George, George Floyd. And I, I don't like to watch the videos of these things, but in some sense, I think it's important and just mm-hmm. the very casual nature in which it was done. Um, yeah it's just awful. I mean, and yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know how much that adds, I guess, to our conversation, but it it just, there seems to just be a sentiment where like, Mm -hmm. when is enough going to be enough, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, and I think that we're, you know, just in this moment, um, you know, it is an election year. Um, I, I just think it, it feels like there are many instances of just callousness you know towards the human condition that that we've been watching and so i I think we've you know as you mentioned that tipping point i think we've just reached it i think we've reached our limit
0: you know another question i wanted to ask just about the demonstrations that are occurring you know Mm -hmm. because again i think it's probably broader than one individual um like brianna taylor or like george floyd right it's about Mm -hmm. sort of the everyday experience that black people in America, um, you know, have every single day. And mm-hmm. I, I don't, what do you think, I guess, these protests are telling maybe the rest of the country about that experience that we don't know?
1: Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I remember, um, one of the things that I talked about, you know, with some of my friends and family members and colleagues is, and, and I've I, have not been able to watch, Uh, the video. I I can't, um, I've seen snippets of it. I've seen pictures, you know, uh, snapshots of it, but I can't watch the entire thing. It's just, it's a little, it's a little too much. But um, that look on the officer's face, um, when people are calling out to him and and telling him to to take his knee off of George's neck because he can't breathe. um, That's a look I've seen before. And I think that that's a look that many people of color have seen before um, from members of law enforcement. And, um, you know, I think that one of the one of the um, intentions or one of the messages behind, you know, the protests that we see happening is that this is not an issue of just one bad person or one bad officer or bad apples, as, as some people like to say. Um, it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's Minneapolis or if it's Tupelo, Mississippi or Oakland, California, um, these cases of police violence uh, have played out the same way over and over and over again for a very, very long time, right? I mean, we kind of know the story. We can tell the story without even knowing the situation. A police officer engages in excessive use of force. Someone is killed or seriously injured. There's an internal review process that kicks in. Uh, they look at the situation. Eventually, the, the officer's actions are deemed uh, justified. Uh, no justice is sought. Um, and then maybe, perhaps, there's a dash cam video that gets released You know, much later, sometimes even a year later, uh, or someone recorded the event. And we find out that things happened in a very different way you know, from what we were initially told. Um, and it happens over and over again in, in, in every region of this country. And so that means this is not just an individual problem, right? Like That would be so much easier to deal with if it were just one person. This is a cultural problem. There is a problem in the culture of policing um, that is not holding police officers accountable for misconduct. And and accountability is really the core of this. This is, you know, uh, we can talk about training. We can talk about improved, you know, relationships and communities. Um, but this is really about accountability. Uh, that that's something that governs the behavior um, of everyone right we go to work we know we're going to be held accountable for the work that we're doing Um, but there just really seems to be a disconnect um, within this culture of policing and you know when you're when you're dealing with black communities I mean people have to remember that you're you're dealing with a traumatized group of people right that that is one of the common threads of our experience um, in this country, is Black people, and and that's true for other communities, for Native people as well. We we are traumatized, and so when you're dealing with a traumatized group of people, it's not enough to just make cosmetic fixes. Uh, that you have to root out the source of the trauma um, to really to, to really fix the problem.
0: You know, I I think it's so difficult, especially with public institutions. I think that there are oftentimes where people have the right intentions, but you know they encounter um, roadblocks along the way. I mean. Mm-hmm. What are meaningful ways that public institutions can work to end issues of systemic racism? Um, and real and like you said, get to the root of issues like this. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, um, so first we need to understand what systemic racism is. Um, I think that, and, and I, we're certainly having more conversations about that than I, I ever remember in my lifetime, which I think is good. But some people, I think, come to the conclusion that systemic racism means that racism just exists everywhere. Um, and it's a little bit more than that. You know, it, it's about racial biases that exist within our institution and organization's And it's harder to identify because they're not necessarily explicit. Right. So it's not a racial epithet. It's not a noose hanging from a tree. It's not, you know, mistreating someone who happens to be of a different race, that it's built into the laws and the policies and practices of our institutions. Um, And often, you know, these laws and policies are racially neutral. So we may look at it. We may read the policy. We may be aware of it. But we don't take into account how it is disproportionately impacting um, minority communities. And so, you know, just one example in, in a higher education example is legacies, right? This is something that people talk about. You, there's a benefit if you have a family member who's attended the school or someone who's a major donor to a school, um, And you think about institutions of higher education, many, many schools didn't admit people of color for most of their history, right? The school where I received my graduate degree, Rice University, didn't admit black students until 1965, right? So, um... You know, there, there are ways in which uh, uh, people of color have issues with these kinds of policies. Now, institutions have all kinds of ways of trying to address this. You know, for a long time ago it was probably quota systems or affirmative action. But promoting one person of color or even a small group of people uh, who are marginalized, that's not how you um, overhaul an entire system um, of inequality. And so it takes something it, it takes a, a very comprehensive process. Um, of understanding, you know, what the needs are of communities of color and other marginalized communities, um, of being willing to really question how you have done things for a very long time, and then also saying that, you know, be willing to give up these things in order to create an institution that is more welcoming and more inclusive um, going forward. Um, I think it's also important to think about um, biases that operate um, within the leadership of our institutions. Right. So if everyone in a position um, in, an, in, in an executive position at an institution looks the same, comes from the same background, um, you know, is that because only those people are qualified? No, it, it's most likely that people in positions of power like to choose people to be around them that are kind of like them. Right. Right. Um, and so what kind of biases are at play in sort of, in how we're choosing the leadership of an institution, um, and how is that impacting, um, you know, how people of color see themselves reflected, whether it's students or faculty and staff, you know, that, that, that's very important as well.
0: Yeah. Are there any things that here at USD we could do to improve these conditions?
1: I think there are a number of, um, Very tough conversations that we need to have as a community. Um, Before I came to USD, I I did my research about USD. And one of the things that was uh, very promising to me was that I saw, you know, um, I I saw people of color in um, leadership positions, deans, associate deans, the chief diversity officer, faculty and staff. Um, And just in the two years that I've been here, nearly all of those people are gone. And, you know, I think often what happens is, you know, people will say, well, you know, they're leaving because they found really great opportunities somewhere else. And it's it's never that simple. You know, when people feel valued, when they feel seen, when they feel like their work um, is is appreciated, uh, they're willing to stay. They're not going to just uproot their lives and their families just because of another opportunity. Um, And so I think that's important. You know, just even even asking the question, why do so many people choose to not live in Vermilion? Right, uh, USD is is a commuter campus in a lot of ways. I live in Sioux Falls, um, so why don't we talk about that? What does that mean? And um, so, so I would like to just see some of those things. If, if if I'm doing that kind of research, you can believe that there are other people of color who are doing that kind of research about USD. Um, and what are they going to see now? Whose faces are they going to see when they do that research? Um, I, I think we should be concerned about that.
0: You know, to back up here a second and maybe switch. Uh, focus one one topic that I wanted to discuss with you was um, the phrase Black Lives Matter and it mm-hmm. seems like a almost like way too obvious <laughs> phrase right um, mm-hmm. there's a literal interpretation to it that makes sense but it, there seems to be more meaning to it as well you know I, what can you tell yeah. us maybe about the history of that phrase how did it develop what it maybe means to you personally but also just Um, generally to everything that's happening in America right now? What what does it mean as a movement?
1: Sure. Um, So I was just thinking about this the other day. You know, this is a movement that has... um, And and certainly the movement is is much longer than, you know, the last few years. You know, it's just taken place in different forms. But Black Lives Matter in particular um, has really... um, I don't know the right word for it. it. It has been a highlight in my experience here since I moved to South Dakota. Um, It's really defined key moments of my life here in South Dakota. So I moved here in July of 2013 and uh, I moved into a house. And at the time I was living in Brookings and, um, you know, I, I only had my suitcases and my books. I didn't have any furniture. I I didn't know anyone in the community yet. And one of the first things that I did when I, uh, when I moved in was uh, I kept refreshing my, my Twitter Uh, account, my Twitter timeline, uh, waiting for the verdict in the George Zimmerman case. And so George Zimmerman is the man who killed Trayvon Martin. And so I kept, you know, refreshing, waiting for the announcement to be made um, in, in that case. And then, of course, you know, he came back as an acquittal. And so I remember just calling friends back home and friends who were in other places around the country and just, you know, crying on the phone and, and just saying that, how could this happen? You know, it was so clear that that he had murdered Trayvon, that he had stalked him and murdered him. Um, and how could this happen? And, you know, and in those years since, you know, I I can think about um, Tamir Rice, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, that all of those things have happened since I've been here, that this movement has just uh, grown and grown and continued and become so much more intense and so much more traumatic um, as as all the years pass. And so um, the phrase itself, Black Lives Matter, actually uh, comes from a group of uh, Black queer women who are organizers and activists uh, out in California. And a woman named Alicia Garza she wrote uh, after the the George Zimmerman verdict. Um, she wrote a letter to, she called it a love letter to black people. And in that letter was the phrase black lives matter. And so her friend Patrice, Patrice colors, uh, took that phrase and put a hashtag in front of it. And so that's how the phrase was born on Facebook. So, uh, so that's how the phrase was born. And then it really was a year later when, um, it really was a year later when, um, Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson and the, um, protests er- erupted in Ferguson, that the movement was really born. So, um, so that's where it comes from. And, and I think it's, I think it's an incredibly important phrase. And it's, it's very, um, it's hurtful to me to see how some people have purposefully tried to obscure the phrase or purposefully tried to misinterpret it. You know, just in very intentional ways. Um, you know, no one has said that only Black lives matter. That's not what it means. Um, and when and when you respond by saying all lives matter, that that is an aggression. That's an aggression. Right. You're, you're doing that to be aggressive because you don't like hearing people say this phrase. Um, and, re- and really what it means is that, you know, this is something that impacts black communities in very unique ways. Um, and it shouldn't happen. We, we know that police officers kill about seventeen hundred people per year. And um, African-Americans make up about 33 to 35 percent of those who are killed. But we're only, um, you know, about 13 to 13 and a half percent of the nation's population. So that math just isn't right. Um, and so, you know, we're trying to bring uh, attention to an issue that is of great importance to communities of color. And so, you know, people really shouldn't respond by saying all lives matter. I think that this is a time to try and listen and learn Um And try to empathize with an experience of of someone who's different from you.
0: You know, are there any, I guess, meaningful steps that, you know, people can take in their own lives to maybe recognize their own implicit biases and, you know, try to, I guess, not just have good intentions, but actually use those intentions to promote good action? Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think... One thing that's important is to think about racism institutionally. Um, I I feel like when when Black people talk about racism and when White people um, are talking about racism, we're having very different conversations. Um, and and I I, I want to say this the right way. Um, I I think that um I think that White communities struggle to understand or or to think about racism institutionally. Um, And there's a book that's really popular now. Everyone's reading it that that kind of makes this argument called white fragility, Um, that that white communities kind of struggle with this idea of of institutional racism or systemic racism, that it's more about what's in a a person's heart or a person's mind um, or how good or bad a person is. And if you're a good person, it's not possible that you could be racist. Um, but we really need to abandon that way of thinking and, and get on board with what, what systemic racism, what institutional racism means. Um, we could, you know, tomorrow everyone in the world could wake up and we could never have another racist thought in our minds, uh, but we still have not eradicated racism in our society because it's not about hearts and minds don't oppress people. It's it's laws and policies and practices that disproportionately impact communities of color that, that oppresses people. Um, and so you know, I, I think that communities need to educate themselves about that and also think about the policies that are in our state. You know, what are you supporting? Um, you know, South Dakota is known for for being a state that is rather punitive um, in, in a lot of our policies, especially in drug policy. Uh, we know that communities of color, uh, all communities actually use drugs at, at remarkably similar rates. Right. So whether they're white or uh, Black or Latino or or other communities, it, it's a vice that afflicts a lot of communities. But when it comes to the enforcement of drug policy, when it comes to, you know, where do police officers go to actually look for drug crimes, um, that isn't done in an equitable way. And so um, and we can only get to the root of that. We can only understand that if we're thinking about Um, racism is something that happens systemically and institutionally. So I I think that that's incredibly important. So I think just reading and educating um, is and educating yourself is incredibly important. Um, But also just showing support for this movement. I, you know, I know everyone is releasing statements and, um, you know, everything else, but, um, it's really time to stop questioning people's motives. I, I know I fully understand why people are uncomfortable with the protests and, you know, they're uncomfortable with some of the images that they see on television, but protest is really not about our comfort level. It's not about making people comfortable. It's meant to create a kind of social discomfort so that people will come to the table. Uh, people in positions of power will come to the table to negotiate, um, so if we could just kind of put our own comfort levels on the back burner um, and and really try and understand why this is happening, why people are leaving their homes in the midst of a global pandemic to protest the killing of someone in Minneapolis, what does this say about our society? What does this say about our communities and what are we going to do to address it? So I think just, you know, just trying to lead with uh, lead with your empathy, dial up your empathy and dial up your understanding and, and really try to educate yourself on this issue so that you think and, and speak in different ways.
0: Now, Dr. Chandler, I think we could probably talk about these issues all day. And I think we're we're going to have to ask you to come back on again to continue this conversation. Mm-hmm. We generally ask all of our guests, though, one question. Before I do that, um, mm-hmm. is there anything else that I guess you'd want people to know about just everything that's happening um, right now with the protests or with criminal justice yeah. reform, police brutality? just anything that you think would be valuable?
1: Yeah, I think this is our moment. I, th- I think this is it. You know, I, I don't think we're going to get another chance to do this right. And so uh, I, I think we really need to act. You know, th- there are lots of conversations that are going on around the country from divestment, you know, and divesting from police to reallocating resources to tearing down monuments. Um, there are lots of different conversations going around. And, and I'm open to... The idea that you know some some of these things may not be relevant to you know our lives and our communities here in South Dakota. I'm open to that, but I, I think that we really need to um, prepare to make changes. We, we we should prepare for the society that we want to live in, not for the society that we are now. And so I think that we should be open to a lot of these national conversations about changing policy, about police reform, um, about creating relating differently to each other in our communities. You know, maybe thinking about um, a life where we don't necessarily call police for certain things that maybe we find other ways to deal with this. I, I, we we have to consider these things in this moment because otherwise I, I don't know that, um, that it will change if we don't.
0: No, the last question that we generally ask all of our guests is a little bit philosophical in nature. Um, and I think that you've had, obviously have had an interesting journey at this point in your life. What do you know for sure?
1: Um, well, I think it's probably why I work, you know, in higher education. I don't ever want to work anywhere else, um, in my life. I, I love working on college campuses and, and I really believe in young people. I do. I just really believe in younger generations. And I think we tend to not do that. I think we question or want to criticize younger people, but I, I think younger people are better than us. I really do. I think that they're more welcoming. They're more inclusive. They're more visionary. They're more expansive in their thinking. Um, you know, I, I think as as we get older, I you know maybe we lose some of that. We get settled in our ways, and we lose some of that audacity. And so um, I just I really I'm I'm heartened that this is a movement that is led by young people, and um, I think that they're going to create a better society for us. So I I really believe, um, I really believe in young people, and that's why I love working with them.
0: Well, Dr. Chandler, thank you so much for the work that you do here at USD, um, and thank you also just for speaking with us about these issues today. There's a lot going on, and like I said, we'd love to have you on again. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, Voices Amplified. Tune in next week as we continue to explore issues involving race, social justice, and criminal justice reform.